Redbox Media Programming is brought to you by... This is Kevin O'Brien of EWTN's Theater of the Word. I'm excited also to teach middle school and high school literature, speech, and drama with homeschoolconnections.com, an online Catholic curriculum provider. Your student can meet with me online for a live, interactive class. Whether you take apologetics with John Martinoni or grade school with Jackie De La Viaga, or any of the other 400-plus courses with homeschoolconnections.com, online Catholic learning for your homeschooling family is available for you. This episode is brought to you by Hallow, the number one Catholic app. Hallow has 1,000 audio-guided prayers and meditations for you to deepen your relationship with God. To listen to all of the Hallow meditations for free for 30 days, head to hallow.com breadbox. In this audio cast number three, Shoot the Shiitake with me, Father Leo, you find out what I do all day. I work with ex-cons. So just sit back and... One, two, three, listen. If you're willing to talk, Father Leo is willing to listen. Get ready for a deliciously deep discussion of Shoot the Shiitake with Father Leo. Welcome to another special Shoot the Shiitake with me, Father Leo, your host. In today's show, we are going to be speaking with an ex-convict, a returning citizen who I just happened to hire. Yep, you'll hear more about it in the next deep dish discussion. But for now, here's a little amuse-bouche for you. What do you call a clairvoyant midget who has escaped from prison? A small medium at large. And here's another one. What do prisoners use to call each other? Cell phones. Yep, I wish I had my own sound effects, ladies and gentlemen. But when we come back, we're going to actually speak, get a little deep into why this guy went to prison in the first place. And then how did he turn out when he came out? More to come on Shoot the Shiitake in our deep dish discussion. Welcome back to this deep dish discussion, and I've got with me Steve Albright. He came out of the prison. <laughs> Steve. Good morning, Father. Well, welcome out. Good morning. Thank you. It's good to be out. <laughs> and when we say out, we're not talking about you, you know, coming out with some big news that you're just going to turn out to be like a, you're still a guy, right? Yes, I am. All right. Yes, I am. So the prison hasn't changed you or anything. It hasn't. Well, it has changed me, but for the better. Oh, well, we'll have to find out all about this. So anyway, welcome officially again to you. You were in prison for how long? I was in prison for approximately six years. What brought you in? I committed a crime, uh, first degree assault, back in 2007. Yep. And I spent uh, six years incarcerated and I was released in 2014. Okay. And uh, how long were you supposed to be in prison for? Well, my original sentence was for 20 years, all suspended, but 10, but technically 10 years. Oh, I, I don't quite understand that. So, I mean, that's a lot of math for me here. So, yeah. 20 years you were supposed to be in prison. Behind bars. I was supposed to be in actually, yes, sentence was 20 years, but they suspended 10 years off of that original sentence. Why? Because it was uh, 
my first offense. Okay. So I actually was given a 10-year sentence. Okay. And I spent six years of that incarcerated, in prison. So why didn't you do the other four? Good behavior and working, I got uh, earned good days. Okay, good days, good behavior. So you're a nice guy who grew up where? Well, I grew up in New Jersey, uh, the great state of New Jersey. All right, what exit? <laughs> exit 16E. <laughs> <laughs> exit 16E. I don't exactly know what that is. Is that the hood or is that kind of like well, a I, neighborhood? What? Yeah, I grew up in a, a, a probably the most at the time it was the most densely populated place in the United States. Densely populated. That sounds a lot like a euphemism such as So we had 100,000 people packed into a quarter of a square mile. And right across from New York City. What um, was this demographic? The town is called West New York, New Jersey in Hudson County, and the big city is Jersey City. A lot of people have heard of Jersey City. Jersey City. Okay. And uh, was this an affluent area? No, I actually grew up in the projects. Okay, so you grew up in the projects. <laughs> this is going to sound so politically incorrect, but this is what I do on Shoot the Shiitake. You grew up in the projects, but you speak English like a nerdy white guy, even though you're a big black guy. I don't yes. quite, I mean, so folks, you got to see that he looks like a, he looks like a black Mr. Clean, basically. But you, again, you don't sound like you grew up in the projects. And I hate to say that, but I live in the projects. Yes, you do. So, so I know what kids sound like growing up. Why don't you sound like that? Well, I, I mean, I am one of nine children and our, and our parents, my mother and father, uh, really, we're really big about school. So we went to school. Okay. We used to practice our printing and our writing and proper grammar and all things education. I'm, I was actually uh, one of the uh, only few of my siblings that didn't attend college after high school. Really? But my oldest brother went to college and he's 73. Huh. Okay. So your parents were kind of atypical of a lot of unfortunate, you know, lower income homes. Yes. So they raised you right. There were nine kids. How many bedrooms did you all have in your home? We actually had three bedrooms. So three apiece in each one. Oh, no. So your parents had a bedroom. <laughs> the parents had a bedroom. We had pretty much people in bunk beds, two double bunk beds in one room. Okay. There's a little bit of age difference, but the, I am the oldest of the second set of children, I call Got it. it. I'm 12 years younger than my next older brother. So. Okay, okay. So, I mean, but you grew up in this area, and, and what was it like growing up in this situation like that? And did that have a factor into why you even got into prison in the first place? No, I don't think it did, because I grew up in predominantly uh, the area I grew up in, West New York, with the projects. There was a lot of uh, what we thought was middle-class families, but it was a lot of black, white, Hispanic. Okay. Always kids to play with because everyone had eight and nine, ten kids. Sure. So it was a really good neighborhood as as I felt growing up. So and it's a good it, thing. And good so, neighborhood. Parents, your father worked. He came home at six. You had to be home for dinner. So even in the projects, there can be a lot of dignity. There was a lot of dignity. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I hate to say it. I've watched the good times. I mean, like yes. mom and pop, they, they raised their kids right. Yes. And that's the way we were all raised. Every, every kid that I can remember growing up with, their dads worked, mom stayed home with the children. All right. This is a little side dish here, but what is the problem today? I mean, I live in the projects now. These kids are running around like rampant hoodlums. They really have no guidance for them whatsoever. And I, I'm not surprised why they're in prison. Yeah, I mean, I, if I had the answer to that, that's a million dollar question. Well, then make that million dollar, brother. I mean, <laughs> holy cow, we got to figure this out. We got to get your message out there, which is why you're my guest on Shoot the Shiitake. So, so you grew up, big family, your parents raised you right. What happened that a good raised child didn't 
make it without going into the prison system. I well, don't understand. Yeah, so uh, you know, a very after after graduating high school, I immediately went into the military. Uh, Seventeen, joined the United. Why? I, I wanted to sense of duty, serve my country. That's what uh, a bunch of us did. In so there. you're American. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you're a flag waving American. Yes, I am. <laughs> so you you just wanted to serve your country. Was there any particular thing that said I want to serve America? No, it was just uh, my dad was in uh, World War II. Uh, I had an uncle in World War II. My brother was a Marine, and I wasn't really interested in going to college. Okay. So I needed to find a way, and why not serve my country? It was a great opportunity to get to travel and see the world, which yeah. I did. Yeah. I, I was in the U.S. Navy. A bunch of my friends joined with me. Okay. Okay, so it was just a thing to do, and did you want to make a career out of that? I did. I actually okay. absolutely did. I well, was why, a, why didn't you then? Well, there were certain things that happened during my military career. One, I developed a alcohol and substance abuse problem about eight years in. About eight years in, how did that start? Well, it was, it was something that was interesting. My, I have a brother that was 12 years older than me, and mm-hmm. he had a cerebral hemorrhage and died. How did he get that? He fell, I mean. Okay, uh, and well, was he, it like... A fight or something? Or no, no. He fell. He actually, fell. fell going to the store for my mom. Oh Jesus! And uh, she God sent him, him to the hospital, and he never came home. Oh. It was one of those incidents that you know. Here I am, twenty, twenty three, twenty four years old, mm-hmm. and I lost my best friend, and I didn't know how to cope with it. I mean, drinking has always been a a thing of my family. We all drank. What did you drink? We drank beer. We drank alcohol. Was and- there a particular type of beer? I used to like to drink Negra Modelo. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm a, but my dad drank Budweiser. Okay. okay. <laughs> the king of beers. All right. So, 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 so it was a, a beer drinking family and maybe yeah. a little hard liquor on occasion. Yes. You know, holidays and wine and so forth. Okay, you know, were, were there any, any alcoholics in your family? I, oh, I actually believe there were several alcoholics, including my dad. Just wasn't maybe diagnosed? Wasn't diagnosed because, you know what, uh, alcoholism, uh, you know, they went to work every day. My dad worked seven days a week. He drank at night and got up to go to work the next day. Was he an abusive alcoholic? I mean, when he got drunk, did he mellow out or did he just freak out? My dad mellowed out. He used to just, he was, a, he's a mellow guy. Hey, actually, he's still alive. He's uh-huh. 90, he's going to be 95. Oh, and wow. Yeah, he mellowed out. He wasn't one of those abusive guys. So there was not a lot of abuse in your family. You kind of just grew up an intact family, uh, uh, you know, with, with, with stepbrothers and sisters. Well, no, regular brother. I never. Oh, no. no. Oh, so you are. You yeah, are we're the all the kids. Of it all. Okay. Of it all. Yeah, I mean, there was, listen, believe me, there was some dysfunction. There was a lot of arguing going back and forth. Like I said, I am the fifth child and I have a 12 year old brother. So they were older than me. So they were getting in trouble. And you go into the military. You experience a death in your family, namely your one of your best friends, your brother. My brother. And he dies and, and you basically go downward, spiraling. Yeah. Is that what happens? That's pretty much what happened. I didn't know how to cope with death, especially that death. Did and your family have any faith or anything like that? Yeah, my mother forced us to, well, excuse me. I shouldn't say she forced us. Dang, she, you just she, threw her under the bus. <laughs> I did. She gave us the opportunity to to go to church if we wanted she to. She gave you the opportunity. Yeah, she, she let us let us choose for ourselves. I mm, mean, okay. I'm the, I, it's funny, I'm the only one christened and baptized out of my siblings. Okay. But we all had the choice to make of our own. Do we go to church or we do not go to church? Okay. And we all chose to go to church. We, we were raised Protestant, okay. Presbyterian. And I remember Sister Cisco. Sister Cisco. Picking us up every Sunday morning and taking- church us, bus? Actually, she walked. Oh. And we used to walk to Sunday school. She's not school. like, oh, so she was a Protestant sister. Yes. What did you call her? Sister Cisco. 
<laughs> All right. And so you, you experienced this tragedy and you didn't know how to cope. You obviously didn't turn to prayer, but so instead you turned to what? Cocaine and alcohol. Well, that's a winning combination. I, I thought it was at the time because- uh, you Who know, introduced this to you? There was a woman that I knew that hung out at my dad's bar and- uh, Oh, your she, dad has a bar. My dad owned a bar and a car wash. This is, okay, this is all, it's starting to sound <laughs> just, like Breaking Bad. Just like Car Wash at the <laughs> movie. Exactly, woo, all right. And so this bar, was this like a neighborhood bar? Did people get drunk or was it just a place to hang out? No, it was a neighborhood bar where people hung out and got drunk. Okay, so it was everything. Were there drug deals that happened there too? There were some, yes, there were some. Did you know that? Not at the beginning, but later as my addiction took off, yeah, I knew there was a uh, drug deal. I knew I could meet the drug dealers there. So interesting. So your environment is is like good and bad all at the same time. Yes, and coupled living approximately seven minutes outside of New York City mm-hmm. to the greatest city in the world in anything and everything. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you've never been to Verona. You've never been to Einsiedelm. You've never... I'm kidding with you. No. So I sound like a snob right now. And I probably do sound like a snob, but... What I'm doing is I'm having this conversation with a guy who grew up kind of differently from me. You get introduced to drugs right at the, is this like at your brother's funeral or afterwards? The night night before, actually. The night before the funeral. The night before the funeral. Yeah, we all met at my dad's bar to kind of toast and say goodbye to him. And Mm -hmm. uh, I was introduced to this little white powdery substance. And uh, What year was this? 1985. Oh, gosh. Okay, so was it, cocaine was... Kind of new then, right? Yeah, but it was, you know, it was the kind of Studio 54 thing. And like I said, I lived right outside New York City. Yep. Yeah, it was a big, you know, once I found cocaine, I found more of the city, more of the clubs and the crazy nightlife. Okay, but you were in the military during this time as well. Absolutely. I was home on recruiting duty. So you were so trying I was to stationed, I was stationed home. How, are you, how were you when you got high, when you got lit, when you got drunk? Well- one, I, I realized that I didn't want to be around anybody, and it took me away from everything. And actually, I thought was hiding those feelings. Uh, I didn't have to cope with things. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, it was fantastic. I mean, I thought it was one of the best things in the world. Okay. I mean, were, were there a lot of advertising campaigns at the time that says, just say no to drugs? You know, were, were they out there? Yeah, especially the Navy. I mean, there was a big push, zero tolerance. Okay, so you go back to the Navy with the substance abuse, and was there drug activity in the military? There was, there was. I mean, there there were some cover-ups while I was on recruiting duty. Uh, okay. Because we got random urinalysis and so forth. And, and is that what happened to you? You got busted with that? No, actually, um, it got so bad for me so quick that I was I was feeling suicidal. Yikes, okay, so... Drugs, alcohol, pressure of the military, and were you talking to anybody about this? I mean, did you go to a counselor? I actually, um, I went to a chaplain and told them how I was feeling and they needed to do something. So He ratted on you? Actually, no. I think, okay. he's, I think he actually saved my life at the time. Because okay. um, the military back then did not have a substance abuse program. No. Uh, basically, he referred it and uh, I was ultimately discharged from the Navy. With I still received an honorable discharge, Okay, but I could never go back in. Okay. Which was something that was, you know, again, shattering because that's all I wanted to do was serve. Well, that stinks. So what did you do in that transition time? After that transition, I actually, I was married and I had a little girl. I'm sorry I left that out. Okay, that's a big deal. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I got married when I was in the military and um, 
I had a very caring wife who decided to help me and get me into treatment. And that's when I first experienced my first rehab, right out six days after I was released from military service. Okay. So you at least had a foundation of a, of a marriage, a child, and some love that was there, obviously, because she wanted to help you. She wanted to stay committed to you. Absolutely. Then what happens next? I wasn't ready. And I wanted to continue to run and use drugs and alcohol. And ultimately, it was the end of my marriage and uh, my relationship with my ex, as well as my daughter at the time. But I, I knew that I couldn't stay the way I was. So I continued to go back and forth to rehab. I had some rough times where suicide was my only hope. At least I thought that I could relieve myself of all this pain. The pain, I'm trying to figure out what that is exactly. The pain of not being able to stop using. Oh, okay. Under any any circumstance. But it felt good? It felt good in the beginning, but uh-huh. towards the end, it wasn't good at all. It, okay. was, it was a nightmare because all, right. all I thought about was using. How much money did you spend for something like this? Everything I had, pretty much every. I mean, at the time, uh, cocaine was selling for about $100 a gram, so- $100 a gram? Yeah. Gosh, that's more than truffles. <laughs> Gosh. All right. So uh, sorry, folks. I hate to bring up the little levity, but you're going to see why I can talk about these things with uh, Steve Albright, who's obviously struggled with drugs, addiction, broken marriage, a lot of pain, and you were spending a lot of money. So about in a month, what were you spending? So I would say, I mean, really pretty much uh, my savings and everything we had. I, I mean, I- So I, you're left high and dry. What do you do? So, uh, well, there was nothing else to do but to go to treatment and face this. Ultimately, I got clean in 1992. Okay. And I went to treatment in Florida uh-huh. and returned to New Jersey a brand new man. Okay. And then I ultimately, I rented an apartment and went to work in the security field. Security. So you were a bodyguard? Yeah, kind of like a bodyguard. I started at a hotel and then I just progressed. Okay. What did you progress into? Well, I ended up becoming the director of operations for this company, which was very popular in New York City. We did a lot of celebrity protection. Like, Uh, can you tell? uh, Sure. JFK Jr., Madonna. Oh. Prince. What? Princess Di. Princess Di. (laughs) I actually had the opportunity to meet a lot of people. So, So you really cleaned up. I did. I actually cleaned up. I got sober and I was clean for five years. And you were working your butt off doing detail work for all of these people who were in celebrity status, but I'm sure there was drugs involved. I mean, we're talking about like Madonna and... Yeah, I mean, there was a lot, I mean, there was obviously a lot of craziness that went on, a lot of parties, a lot of drinking. You stayed clean. I stayed clean. I managed because I had a foundation. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, what was the foundation? Tell me about it. I went, I went to meetings. Okay. NA, AA meetings. Okay. I had a sponsor, Uh someone that was guiding me through the 12 steps. Yep. And uh, I was committed to this. Okay. And then what happens next? I decided to drink again because I thought I had it all. Okay. Now that just sounds ridiculous. It does. But if you're not continually working these principles and these steps, you'll fall. Continually working the principles. All right. And so you didn't work the principles? You probably thought you were bigger than your britches? Absolutely. Because I, this is a small kid from West New York. Yeah. And, and I'm standing to next to- Diana. Yeah. Exactly. And Nelson Mandela. <clears throat> oh, geez. And, you know, like, who cares about everything else? Making a lot of money, living in New York City. And, you know, I and had the world by- 
Yep, you had the one by, by the what? <laughs> the cojones. <laughs> okay. And All right, so you had, you had the world by the, yes. Uh, so you just fell? How many times? Well, when you fall once, little did I know, the, and I didn't believe people that were telling me this, your addiction grows with you as you're getting sober. And if you're not continually practicing, you pick up right where you left off. So your addiction grows with you when you get sober. Okay. Yeah. And then you fall back into it. And then well, what happens? You get fired or what? Yeah. It's kind of, I quit and I moved to out West and then I continued to use, but I kept, try to keep it under the wraps. You know, okay. I, it was a hidden secret now. And I tried to do geographic changes around the country, around the world. Why? Because I, your name was showing up somewhere? No, because uh, I didn't want anyone to know about my addiction. Okay, but I mean, there were a lot of people who were addicted at that time. Yes, there was, but nobody working in security. That, oh, you know, okay, so yeah, you probably can't be high when you're trying to protect. Or carrying a gun. Yeah, well, that's a very <laughs> good know, point. Yeah. And so you're just hiding, you're kind of traveling. What okay. happens next? So I end up moving to the eastern shore of Maryland, and uh, my addiction was in full bloom, and I got into an altercation, uh, and I committed this crime, this first-degree assault. Against who? Against one of my ex-girlfriends. Uh, Okay, so you divorce your wife. Long divorce. Long, long divorce. divorce. Are you still in contact with your kid? Yes. Okay. So you tried to be his father, much of a father as you possibly can. Paid my child support, but which I thought was... But you still need a relationship. So you have this girlfriend. Did you meet her in Maryland or where was she from? No, she's an old friend from New Jersey that I met and we brought her to Maryland. Was she on drugs too? Yes. Okay, so this is not looking good. No, it's not. It's a dead... If you're using drugs and you're in a relationship, your partner is either using drugs in a relationship. Okay. Boy, this just sounds, unfortunately, so typical because you're drugged out with this girl. And I mean, were you just high to, to do what? What did you do? Well, I felt betrayed and I- Betrayed, wow. Yeah. There were certain, some infidelities that were happening and- So she cheated on you? Y- yeah, did kind Did you cheat on her? Yes, absolutely. Oh God, this is, this is so typical. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> there was, just so that you know, I lived in the hood as my first parish- and there was a couple that would sit outside the stoop of my rectory, and they were the, I called them the FU couple. Because literally about two or three o'clock in the morning, the, the guy'd be like, oh, F you, I'll buy you. And then she'd be like, I'll buy you. And they would literally go back and forth, be like, but I haven't love you. No, you haven't cheated on me, but I haven't love you. And they were so drugged out. This was happened like three or four times a week to the wow. point where one night they were just talking about how much they loved each other, but they effed each other up. And so F you, but I effing love you. I opened my window and said, shut the F up. <laughs> shut the up. Freak up and come call the freaking cops. It got me so angry, but that's so typical. It is. And it sounds, I hate to say it, no, it sounds like your relationship with this woman. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're addicted and you're a full-blown addiction and you are you try to be in what you call a normal relationship, you're never going to find that with someone that doesn't use or drink. You got to find someone that uses and drinks mm. because you don't want them to mess up your high. All right, <laughs> well, guess what? When we come back... We're going to continue our conversation with Stephen Albright, who just happens to be the culinary director for the Table Foundation. You're learning a lot about him, and I'm learning a lot about him, even though I hired this man. And we're going to find out why I did it when we return with more Shoot the Shiitake with me, Father Leo.
This portion of our program is brought to you by Select International. It is more than a travel company. It's a group of people who know how to cater to every host's needs, including me, because they're one of my primary travel agents because I know that the owner and all the people that work there are willing to work with me so that I can provide all of my pilgrims one of the most unique and profound experiences ever. They truly balance an individual approach, giving pilgrims the opportunity not just to see all of the typical and traditional things, but to go even deeper, which is why I invite you to join me and select International on some of my upcoming trips, whether it be to the Holy Land on June 17th through the 28th, or to Italy, or to the Danube River, or to France, or to Spain. I go to so many places, and I am learning even more, even though I've traveled to so many of these places. Why? Because Select International does an amazing job of keeping us all fed body, mind, and spirit. For more information and join me on one of my trips, go to Father Leo Feeds at fatherleofeeds.com or give Select International a call at 800-842-4842. Again, that's 800-842-4842. Call today. Welcome back to Shoot the Shiitake with me, your host, Father Leo, talking to Stephen Albright, culinary director of the Table Foundation, which seeks to harvest the power of food to do good. Steve is just telling us now the second part of his journey where he has just gone back to using drugs with a woman who's using drugs too. And obviously with a bunch of infidelity on both sides, you do something stupid. Yes, I committed an assault. I assaulted her. It's because was I, this like an emotional assault? Was she like a snowflake, or was this physical? No, this was a physical assault. It was pretty. It was severe, and yep. I reg- I regret that I it happened, but I was under the influence, and so you were you were you were I was drunk. You were drunk. Yes. And, and uh, what happens? So I just I assaulted her with a with a pistol. Oh gosh. And, okay. Um, I got arrested. I felt suicidal, and I, w- I was hoping the cops would kill me and put me out of this misery. But uh, unfortunately, was this kind of like in a domestic situation in a home, or were you out in public, or what happened? Well, it started as a domestic situation at home, and it went outside to the public. So oh, this is Jerry Springer live, 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 live. All right, and, and so you get arrested. Had you ever had handcuffs on you before? I have, but not like this. I mean, oh, wait I, a second, are you into that kind of stuff? I mean, <laughs> no. I actually, when they handcuffed me, they shackled me. And oh. They did what they call a three-piece. It's a waistband, and your your arms are really restrained. And and what happens next? So you're they, put in the cop car, and then what happens? So I was actually I was actually put in a cop car. I was actually put in an ambulance. Oh. And taken to a hospital for evaluation, and then they uh, sent me to a psych hospital. Okay. Because they felt that not only was I homicidal, but I was I had suicidal ideations. Okay. I was evaluated, and uh, I was ultimately sent back to the detention center. The detention center is that where you stayed for six years? Or no, no, that put was in prison. I was actually put in prison. I was in. And what the, kind of security was this prison? It's a medium two, so it's one level below maximum. Okay, so it's not death penalty. It's not maximum security. It's one level below it. Yes, but I I spent a lot of time with lifers. It's a prison that had lifers in it. And and are these people were they? 
they super violent and they they've all committed murders and yeah there was several yeah there's, there was several people there that had committed murders so uh, excuse my ignorance but I know very little bit about prison I did a lot of work with prison ministry and chaplaincy and I've been inside of it but they were detention centers and some maximum security but it's not like I know what it's really like if I'm spending like three or four hours there at a time right what is it really like well I mean honestly the my first day. I thought that they had sent me to a place to die. Everything you see about prison, if you think, if you watch Oz and there's different shows about prisons, it's very real. People are losing their lives. Every- so there's gangs? There's gangs. There's- and, there, and there's drugs? Are there drugs in prison? Uh, yes, there How is. How do they get in there? Well, like, I, without, without, you know. Were um, you doing drugs in prison? No, I wasn't. Okay. Actually, so the interesting thing, I, once the incident occurred, mm-hmm. I, I immediately got sober. Oh, so basically so, the arrest kicked the, arrest, the shiitake right. out of you for your drug right. desire. It, well, and actually, I stayed in detention for about four months until I was able to make bail. And then while I awaited trial, I went back to the meetings and so forth. So this is crazy, but you stayed sober. Yes. Okay. So what happened was after my sentencing, after eight months, I got sentenced and I was sent to diagnostics in Baltimore, Maryland. It's where everyone goes to transition. Mm-hmm. I started reading a lot of different books and some spiritual books and so forth. And Like, do you remember a title? The Awakening was one. And there was a couple of things that made sense, you know? So I knew that I needed to, I don't know, find a way to figure this out because it was going away for a long time. When you go into prison and you're in, again, a medium two, did you make friends? Do you Did you make enemies? I mean, is is the culture like, I'm going to beat you up. You're going to be my, you know what? So all of the above. <laughs> I have, uh, I made some friends and I made some enemies. Did people try to pick on you or, or what? Well, I was a little bit older than most of the uh, young guys that were in prison. I mean, their ages range from anywhere from 16 to, I met guys in their 80s. Mm-hmm. You meet some people that are good, but I, 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 let me put it this way. One of my cellmates, my, my first cellmate was this crazy Aryan nation guy. Mm. And he went by the name Crazy. He had even had a tattooed on his head. He had the tattoo Crazy on his head. On his head, on the side of his head. Okay. His first thing to me was, I don't, I've don't. i never lived with a black guy before. And, and I looked at him and I said, well, I have, so I'll show you how to get through this. Mm-hmm. Which was, you had to be just as crazy as they sure, were. Sure, sure, sure. So, but after that, they match you up finally with the right people. They put you in a cell with someone that is similar to age and... Okay, so they're trying to match make you in a way. Right. Okay, so... Hmm. So there is drugs. There's drugs. There's, there's alcohol. There's alcohol. There's violence. There's violence. And do they have weapons? I mean, they make weapons and stuff. I think Absolutely. I've seen that on like MSNBC. Yes, they do. There's a lot of weapons that and, are made. And, and is there also just, you know, physical abuse besides violence? Is there rape? Is there a culture of sodomy and such like that? That has occurred. I've, I've witnessed some of that. Not, oh. you know, in the same cell. It hasn't happened to me, but you witness people that have been taken advantage and oh, you you have people that are... You know, yeah, volu- I mean, it's like volunteer. People- oh, it's just okay. like the outside. It. It's it's an every. It's like any community, but it's a prison population this of is men. This going to sound so trite. How's the food? <laughs> so the food is actually uh, it's terrible, but you make the best of it. I thought I was um, eating filet mignon mostly every night, even though I was eating uh, sloppy Joe. Why? 
You just try to envision that to try to get it down. Oh, and, so you're just basically forcing, you're, you're living in a make-believe world. Living in a make-believe world. Thank God for commissary because commissary, you could try to get creative with oodles and noodles and sausage, uh, Vienna sausages and pickles, and you'd make a variety of things called okay, hookups. Those combinations right there sounds like a nightmare on an episode of Chopped. I mean, that <laughs> just sounds... I mean, I think we could do something with it. The sour of the pickles with the savory quality of the Vienna sausages. Ah, I guess we can figure something out. But it is there, though, in the commissary that you kind of get a little bit of a refocus. Yes, it is. And then learning to cook in a microwave in a foot basin... That and a foot basin where you, people wash their feet. Well, what are you talking you, you about? You got clean ones, but that's what we use to cook in a microwave or bowls, a plastic bowl. We used to cook. Okay, you know, when you're in prison, are you feeling sorry for yourself? Did people come and visit you? Actually, I didn't. I had my mom come to visit once, and then I took them off the visitors list. Why? They're doing time just like you are, mm-hmm. only on the outside. I didn't want her to see me on the inside. Okay, and it was a. It was a, My mom was in her eighties. How did you make it through this? prison. Yeah. So I got involved in programs. I met two influential women, Dr. Eileen Matlock and Virginia Warren, and they involved me with conflict resolution programs, programs that I could start working on myself, thinking cognitively. Mm -hmm. I also met some guys that were interested in uh, Buddhism, and we formed a Buddhist religious group. And I started practicing Buddhism, reading about it, walking, technahan, walking meditation. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking about life again, mm-hmm. forming a foundation, which which was amazing because it started me on something that now has brought me, well, to you, Father. Well, wait, that was a big leap. <laughs> it was a big leap. <laughs> that was a super big leap because, I mean, you were in prison, you were Buddhist, you were getting meditative, mm-hmm. you were cooking Vienna sausage, udon yeah. noodles udon. with pickle juice. Gosh, well, that I, I wouldn't disgusting. say udon noodles. Let's call it ramen noodles. Ramen noodles, excuse <laughs> me. <laughs> Ramfa. So you were cooking packs of noodles in a commissary, which is kind of just like an open kitchen area. I mean, no. who, who gave you the chance to go in there because you okay. have knives and things? So, so actually, it wasn't a com- – so you, you purchase your food in a commissary. Okay. You put together an order form and you purchase your commissary. Where did you get had, the money? Well, I had some money that was sent in to me from my family, okay. friends. Well, how does that happen? I mean, so they send you money? Yeah. So basically what they do is they put it on an account. Okay. And then you have a certain amount of money in your account. Mm-hmm. And then once a week, you're allowed to go shopping in, a, in the commissary store. Okay. And that's where you purchase your hygiene products as well as purchasing your food. Okay. If you had money to do that. A lot of people didn't have money to do that. All right. And so you're developing this love for cooking. And what we're going to do is when we come back, we're going to hear about the second half because this is not the full you. I mean, you've made some pretty stupid mistakes, obviously. I mean, I think you're willing to admit that. Absolutely. But uh, you go into prison and there you find a little bit of freedom. So when we come back, we're going to hear a little bit more. So stay hungry for more deep dish discussion with me, Father Leo, as we shoot the shiitake. A lot of people ask, how can I book you, Father Leo, for an event? Well, 
Gratefully, I am booked about a year and a half, sometimes two years in advance, and you can always learn more on how to book an event with me, Father Leo, by going to fatherleofeeds.com. Just click on events, give us the information, and we'll be in touch with you to create an amazing event that truly feeds you body, mind, and spirit. But if I'm not available and you're looking for a great speaker, all you have to do is visit catholicspeakers.com and you can speak to the largest bureau of speakers, musicians, and presenters. Once again, go to catholicspeakers.com to help you book an amazing performer and presenter for your next event. Welcome back to Shoot the Shiitake. We are doing a little side dish discussion uh, with Stephen Albright, the director of the culinary program for the Table Foundation, telling us what it was like in prison. It was miserable. Yes, it was. I wouldn't recommend people going. No, I don't recommend anybody going. Were you surprised with some of the people who were there? I was. Like, tell me why. I was surprised by a lot of the young people that were there, the 16 and 17-year-olds that I met in prison. Why? I realize, so one big thing is, is in mealtime is when everyone goes to the chow hall, you see these kids jumping the line. And, you know, you're an older guy and you're saying like, why does this kid jump in the line all the mm-hmm. time? And it was to get to sit with their friends. And it was something that I didn't realize. Like, you know, as me growing up, I always had to be home for dinner with my family. Mm-hmm. I had to sit at the table with my father and my mother. Actually, my mother didn't sit, but my dad sat and we sat. What did your mother do? My mother was there serving us. What? Serving us the meal. She I mean, your slave? I know. Good Lord. But that's what my, that's what my, my mom be like, My mom's sitting. She'd be like, you get up and you get that pot of rice or something. Okay, right. so, but the table was obviously a big deal for you. Yeah, and the table was- And it, so you were surprised that these kids were jumping the table, but they wanted to sit with their and friends. Friends, and this is something I realized later, you know, that they had no no family. Ah, uh, yeah. And the only family they had were the other guys, that, the other kids that they met. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to sit with them. So I'm going to just ask, you know, in this prison system, it is Maryland, the Eastern Shore, which is kind of like country bumpkin. Yes. What, what was the demographic there? You said it's all age ranges, right? Yes. From 16 to 80. Yes. And then what was the race division population? There? I would say it was 70% African-American, okay. maybe 25% Caucasian, uh-huh. and then the rest were just mixed. Okay. I actually only met one or two Asian guys in prison. Really? Yeah, I didn't meet many. No, oh, okay. Well, that's good. Yeah. I guess. Yay, go Asians. Yay. Take your picture. Wow. <laughs> you just went there. Yeah, I just went there. Sorry about that, y'all. We're just shooting the shiitake here, folks. So so there is that, and there are gangs there. Did they sit together? Did yes. the gang sit together? Oh, yeah. And who did you sit with? I sat with the old dudes. I sat with some lifers and some of the older guys. It was the lifers that taught me how to make it out of prison. Okay. Told me not to gamble. Not to use drugs, not to borrow money, and just stay focused. Keep my head down. What were you focusing on? I was focusing on getting out of prison. Okay. That was my main focus. And what did you want to do when you get out? Well, you know, I I love cooking, so I always knew that, you know, maybe I can cook. Did you like cooking before you went into prison? I did. I used to buy Gourmet Magazine, and I used to try to make the pictures, and I met some chefs, some Mm -hmm. big-name chefs. Like when? Like when you were doing security work? Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you were bodyguarding these chefs? Not bodyguarding them, but like going into their kitchens. Because security, you take your dignitaries through a lot of kitchens. Got it. So I met 
A lot of chefs. A lot of chefs. And I was amazed by some of the things they were doing Mm -hmm. with, you know, I didn't know it was called microgreens and garnishing at the time. Okay. So plating. Plating. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. Let me try to do that. Okay, good. And so, but you kind of enjoy doing that with ramen freaking noodles. (laughs) Yes, I did. I am going to make little uh, (laughs) chiffonade of this. (laughs) Believe me, I didn't know the word chiffonade meant. It's like, you can't do it to anything. I'm trying to think of something you could chiffonade, which by the way, are just thin stripes, folks, just thin little little ribbons of generally with with leaves Mm -hmm. of something. Anywho, so I digress because here's where it gets kind of interesting. You develop a love for food and you are cooking in a commissary out of a foot basin. Yes. Do people like your cooking? Absolutely. They, I mean, they always ask me to cook then. Okay. And so, then what happens? So then I'm, as I'm getting close to release, uh, I'm, I was moved to Baltimore. I wanted to go to culinary school and I started searching out culinary schools and there was one here in Baltimore. I met a gentleman who was, well, let me just talk one thing about for, if I may jump back. When I got to Baltimore, mm-hmm. I started uh, working and walking the yard, exercising with an older gentleman. And I was the only Buddhist in this jail, believe it or not. So on Monday nights, I used to go to Buddhist services. And on Monday nights, there was Catholic services. So there's one Buddhist service and there's (laughs) one guy in it. Me. Yeah. And then there's a Catholic service. Right down the hallway. Got it. And there's a bunch of guys in it. Okay. They asked me to come with, and they didn't care who I was. Mm -hmm. They didn't care what I believed in. They said, just come. You know, if you gain like about 50 more pounds, you could be kind of like a Buddha. (laughs) (laughs) But I ain't putting no pennies in your belly. Thank you. Keep that away from me. So these guys just invite you to a Catholic service. Yes. I mean, was there a priest there? Actually, it was a deacon. uh, Okay. He was uh, Deacon Marty Wolf. Okay. And he brought me, they brought me in and they introduced me to Thomas Merton and they started bringing books and I was reading Mm -hmm. books and, you know, it it was a place that I felt welcomed. There was no judging. I mean, granted, we're all ex-cons, but nobody judged me. No one cared. All they cared and all the deacon cared about was our salvation and saving. And, you know, I cared about saving my soul or, you know, finding a way. Okay. I mean, like, did you think about heaven or were you just thinking, I'm just going to get the heck out of hell? Well, a little bit of both. Okay. A little bit of both. So the afterlife was kind of creeping into your mind. Absolutely. But at the same time, just living a normal life when you leave prison. When I leave prison, yeah. And so you were aiming to get out of prison. You were hoping to make it into the real world. I was working very hard to do that. Okay. And so you So did then that. ultimately like, I get out and I go okay. to, and I went out and got a- Wait, you, you talked about walking the yard with this older guy? Yeah. Tell me about that. Oh, so his name is Bill, Bill Gertner. He's the Catholic guy that- brought me into the, the services and we used to walk and he used to have some good phrases and he used to tell me some things like, because I wanted to go to, you know, culinary school. And then he said, just grow where you planted. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, if it meant staying in Baltimore, stay in Baltimore. Cause I wanted to go back to New Jersey. Um, because it's so nice there? No, because that's where my family was. And, and I recently, my actually, my mother passed away while I was incarcerated. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. About three months before I was released. Oh, geez. So I never got the opportunity to go to a funeral or, <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, uh, spend time with my sisters and my brothers regarding that. That's so. too, I'm very sorry to hear yeah. that, Steve. And so you get out. I get you, out. What happens next? I go to a I go to a halfway house because I was willing to do whatever was necessary. Okay. I stayed sober. I went to a halfway house. I spent 45 days there. I was working. One of my first chefs at, from a guy from Kevin Fleming from P.F. Chang's gave me an opportunity. He saw something too that he didn't care that I was an ex-con. But he gave me an opportunity, and I thought I was going to wash dishes. And he said, no, I'm going to teach you how to work pantry. Okay. 
I ultimately grew. I worked for him for about a year and a half. And when you say work pantry, are you just talking about stocking or are you talking about processing? Processing. I worked, okay. I did plated desserts, I did salads, I go. did a lot of proteins, grill, fryer, steamer. So they gave you a job. He gave me a job. Wow. I was going to culinary school at the time. How were you paying for that? I took financial aid. All right. And the money I was working, I used whatever I had to. I ultimately got one scholarship, which I was grateful for, but about a year and a half into culinary school, I was getting ready to graduate, is when I... Uh, Met you. Okay. <laughs> wow. So you, you've, lived, you've lived quite a career. And what I want to do is actually have you back on so that we can talk about the second half of this experience because we'll just put it this way. You get out of prison, you go into culinary school, you're working, and then we meet how though. I mean, this is the interesting part. So uh, the one gentleman, uh, Bill Gertner, knew uh, Father Colin, who is on the board of the Table Foundation. Okay, so my board, the Table Foundation, has a bunch of members in it, about six, seven members. And one of them is a priest named Father Colin oh. Poston. He was a, he's a, he was, he's younger, well, actually, he's a little older than me, but he was ordained a little bit later. We're very good friends. He's the chaplain for my Table Foundation. And? You were at a dinner with them, and you were saying you needed a cook. You needed someone who had a cook. But not just to cook. <laughs> not just to cook. Yep. You needed an, an ex-con. Yeah. Cooked. I was looking for ex-cons. I was kind of creepy that way. I was kind of scoping the yard. Are there any ex-cons out here? <laughs> and so uh, Bill mentioned, I know a guy. Yeah. So Bill was actually at that dinner because Father Colin was setting up an opportunity for them to get involved somehow in the Table Foundation. Yes. Bill Gertner who was in prison with you, yes. leaves, but he's got a pretty fantastic ministry as well. Yeah, he does. His ministry is called gatekeepersmaryland.org. Okay, and, and he basically does what? He helps guys coming out of the prison system with housing and job fair. Great, and so he met with Father Colin. Father Colin said, you got to meet this priest named Father Leo. That's me. <laughs> and basically, I say, I'm looking for someone who knows how to cook. And I'm looking for an ex-con. And right. Bill Gertner said, have I got the guy for you. you. Little did I know uh, when I sent my resume to, to you, obviously, mm -hmm. they said, get in touch with this, this priest. He cooks. And I'm saying like, who? I don't know who this guy is. Mm -hmm. I sent my resume and you invited me over. And when you gave me your address, I was totally blown away because literally you live four blocks away from me. Yep. And guess what? That's exactly <laughs> where we're going to end it because we're just setting this up for a lot more fun. You're going to hear what it was like when we first met. We're going to hear more about how this organization is just starting off and continuing to grow. And then also hearing the transformation about this Buddhist who is walking the yard with a Catholic goes to a Catholic service because there was no one in the Buddhist service. But more importantly, we're going to meet the new Steve, an ex-con with a great conviction. So when we come back, I'm going to share with you my carry-out order of this conversation. But don't worry, folks. There's more to come. I'm actually going to bring Steve back on since we work together, for God's sakes. And he's going to tell us what it's been like working <laughs> at the Table Foundation and with me. So stick around for my carry out order on this show shoot the shiitake with me father leo
We hope you're enjoying this episode of Shoot the Shiitake with me, Father Leo. And if you want to continue hearing some awesome conversation that lead to some deep conversions, just simply be a sponsor, either a regular or a one-time donor, or you can even advertise with us as long as your product or service is consistent with our mission, which is bringing about conversion through conversation, or even help out thetablefoundation.org. You can learn all of this at fatherleofeeds.com. And welcome back to my carry-out order, just based on reflecting on the deep dish discussion with Stephen Albright, the culinary director of The Table Foundation, which is actually something you can learn about at thetablefoundation.org, or if you go to my website at fatherleofeeds.com, that's spelled out, fatherleofeeds.com, where you can obviously get so much information about what I do. And one of the things that I do is I I'm seeking to open up a cafe, <laughs> breakfast and lunch, and then dinners will be a little unique. You're going to hear more about that in an upcoming episode when I bring Steve back on because he is an interesting guy. When I was reflecting on the conversation that we had, when we were just kind of shooting the shiitake, right? We were just kind of talking about his background. There were three eyes that I kept thinking about, eyes, and, and the three eyes are integration, and then invitation, and then the final I is inspiration. And, and why do I say this? Because this is my carryout order. It is my job to learn from what Steve was talking about. I was bombarding him with question after question, perhaps some inappropriate, but frankly, I don't care. I'm just trying to be honest with him. If I've got a question, you know what the nuns say, there are no stupid questions except for the ones that are not asked. Well, I'll be honest with you, there are some pretty stupid questions and I've asked a few of them, probably even in today's little interview. But one of the things that I was hearing was that this is a guy who grew up in the projects, but in an intact family. So. How did this all happen? Well, because he was unable to integrate. So parents, you can teach your children all of the important lessons of life. Mentors, you can teach your mentees all of the skills necessary to be successful. Coaches, you can teach your athletes all of the techniques to be a world-class athlete. But information is not as important as the integration of the information. What I mean by that? You got to learn how to take all of the pieces that you're experiencing in life, lessons in life, and learn how to put it all together. The one thing that got Steve so screwed up was the fact that he didn't know how to integrate the lessons that he learned from home with the pain that he endured when his best friend slash older brother died. He was unable to integrate that. I can tell you, Steve is one of the most polite individuals I know. How did he just wind up beating up his girlfriend? How did you do that? Well, he was unable to integrate his human emotions, whether it be jealousy and whether it be his own pain, guilt, embarrassment, shame. You know, what we've got to do a better job of is not just simply giving information to people, but teaching people how to integrate the information, which means you take the good and you look at it and realize that, you know, it might not be perfectly good. You take the bad and you look at it and you realize, oh, it's bad, but there are little aspects of hope. How do I connect that little aspect of hope from the bad 
to the not so great quality of the good and see those two pieces literally fit together and then you get a more complete picture of a human person that were made up of weeds and wheat and the fact is we need to learn how to integrate the good times and the bad the sickness the health the times when you are sober and the times when you are tripping out you know we got we got to just make sure that we are not living double lives which is kind of like what he was doing the the other i that kept coming up when as i was listening to him was this word invitation you know the reason why i got into drugs in the first place is because he was invited to do it <laughs> he just was invited to do it on the night before his brother's funeral of all times. Can you believe that? It's kind of like sick. But the reality is the devil is constantly inviting us to do bad things. And, and we kind of are attracted to that because it's fun, it's hip, it's cool, it's more edgy and appealing. And God is constantly trying to invite us. Like his mom invited the children to the church and he went, but I mean, I don't know, maybe here in another episode, whether he accepted that invitation fully. Did he give himself fully to that invitation like he gave himself fully to the invitation to do drugs? You know, I mean... And, and it can take you over. And so this idea of invitation is what can help a guy or screw up a guy. And in this case, and here in Steve's story, he just got invited to Catholic service. <laughs> and that kind of makes all the difference in the world when he was in prison. You know, an invitation is really one of the most powerful things we've got in this world. And to accept an invitation is one thing, but then to put yourself out there and invite someone into your home. I invited this ex-convict, drug addict, alcoholic, and, you know, not wife, but maybe girlfriend abuser, into my home. Was I stupid? <laughs> well, it's only because I'm kind of an integrated enough priest that I wasn't afraid to invite him. And why? Because Jesus invited some pretty hardened people into his life and even into his heart. You know, I mean, there's this, there's this part in the Mass where right before we receive communion, we say, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And, and, and that just means that what we've got to do is keep inviting the right people into our life, and to accept only the good invitations that lead to good things. And then the third I that I kind of learned in all of this, because, you know, the whole carry out order for this Shoot the Shiitake show is, is, is I've got to consider what I've learned and how can I be a better priest in the long, and I never asked Steve that. I never asked Steve, how can I be a good priest for you? And maybe that's going to be the question I start off with when I have him back on a future episode. Because frankly, he is pretty interesting. I mean, he's not anywhere near me right now, so he would never hear his boss say that he's interesting. No, but I'm fascinated by him, to be honest with you. And I learn a lot from him. And I learn one thing, that inspiration goes a long, long way. You know, what happened when he got into drugs was simply a result of not being inspired because he didn't take and integrate the invitation of his mom to cast your 
sadness onto the Lord Jesus, to, to just cast yourself onto God, and he can help you. That's inspiration. And I find that there is so little inspiration in the world. But can I tell you where I have found a lot of inspiration? In prison. People, I have met some amazing people in the prison system, whether they're working there and trying to bring about good out of guys who did horrible things, or you know whether it's some of these prisoners who have truly inspired me. I remember going to the detention center in Baltimore and I, I would lead services, whether it be a communion service or a full-on mass or just a little prayer Bible discussion. And this one guy came up to me and he was an amazing artist. And he gave to me one of the most beautiful pictures I had ever seen. He drew it out of crayon, you know? And, and it didn't look anything like crayon. It looked like a work of art. It was Jesus literally on the cross and his blood from his heart was dripping into the hands of Mary, his mother, who was at the foot of the cross. And the blood literally in Mary's hand as she's catching it looks like little pieces of bread. Think about this. It was a prisoner who drew one of the most profound theological images I had ever seen. And this guy didn't speak English all that well. And, but he was such a nice guy. And every time I see him, saw him, he would like literally give me this hug and say, I am so happy to see you, Father Leo. I got something for you. And he showed this to me, which is why, this is one of the reasons why I'm doing this show in the first place. You got to know, folks, that when this show concept came about, it was really to try to meet people where they're at. Bad English, but you know what I'm talking about. And people like Chef Steve and people like these former inmates, ex-cons that I've had the privilege of working with, they have inspired me to learn that God's mercy is real if you're willing to accept that invitation and to integrate the bad that you've done with the grace that he can give to you and to make sure that we are staying in spiritus, inspired, in the spirit. And there are many spirits out there, folks, that are feeding us a bunch of lies, which is why I am doing what I'm doing on this show, Shoot the Shiitake. I'm trying to give information that will keep us inspired. And one of the things that keeps me inspired is knowing that I can learn from an ex-convict. So I hope you enjoyed this show. This is going to be kind of like what I do in my future episodes, but talking to people who might even still be in prison or at least feeling in prison in their own hearts. And so please make sure that you join the movement. Tell your friends all about this show and all that they can learn from it. And more importantly, stick around for another special episode of Shoot the Shiitake with me, Father Leo. And in the meantime, stay hungry. Are you looking to serve God and society? Consider putting your gifts to work as a lawyer. Ave Maria School of Law has been educating faith-filled lawyers for over 20 years. Ave Maria School of Law is committed to training lawyers to use law appropriately around the moral issues of our time. 
Visit AveMariaLaw.edu to learn more about integrating your faith with a law degree.